Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey towards Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you would, greet somebody on your way down. I wouldn't mind if you gave God a hand clap of praise this evening. Don't break your fingers in the process. <laughs> uh, for those of you who weren't here when we started, uh, I, I told them at the top of our time, my goodness, man, I told them at the top of our time that uh, for whatever reason, uh, in our building right now, this is the only room that we don't have heat in, and uh, it is a revelation to us. And so uh, thank you for the great gift of your presence, particularly uh, in light of our current circumstances. Uh, and uh, I, I will remind you again, as I did at the top of our time, um, the Lord just keeps teaching me and teaching me and teaching me uh, that the things that we enjoy that have become so very normative for us, the rest of the world doesn't know. And so in moments like this, there's a couple of ways you can experience it. You can experience it through frustration, which is where I started, right? I'm a human being. Uh, or you can experience it as a reminder. Uh, in fact, I, I was standing there singing Rejoice just now. I'm reminded of going to Cambodia in 2007 and having the best worship service I've ever had, literally under a tree in the middle of the jungle, uh, being led by teenagers who had started a church for the orphans that were escaping trafficking in the city. And, and the Lord brought that to mind. And he said, <laughs> you know, remember, remember that there's a whole host of people all over the world who are experiencing this in a very different way right now. And even inside of this building, we are miles ahead of many others. Amen. So I'm so glad to be with you this evening. And I will try to be expeditious as we uh, continue and conclude our series uh, called Jazz Christmas. Uh, this has been a very fun series for me, especially delving into the history of some of my favorite uh, Christmas songs. And tonight, uh, we are exploring my very favorite Christmas song, O Holy Night. Uh, and this piece seeks to capture the beauty of the night that Jesus was born. In fact, it seeks to capture the beauty of the night that we are trying to experience together this evening and its significance. And the question I want to put before you as, as we prepare to delve into this moment is, have you ever asked yourself why Jesus' advent changed everything? Now, if you're not a follower of the way of Jesus, then of course, uh, maybe that's not a question you've ever even thought about thinking about. But the reality is every year the History Channel does a special on Jesus. And every spiritual leader in the world, Christian or not, is fascinated with Jesus. And for some reason, over 2,000 years later, we're still talking about a Middle Eastern or stone worker from an impoverished town born to a single mother and, and who, who is not for the father that she was married to. And if this was just a man, then why are we still talking about his story so many years later? What is so significant about the birth of Jesus? Why did it change everything? As we prepare to explore the beauty of this song, I want to read through a couple of verses that kind of capture that moment for us out of Matthew chapter 2. And by the way, if you didn't get one of these and you'd like to follow along, the sermon notes are inside of this songbook as well as the lyrics to every song that we sing, and they are yours to keep. 
And so if you need one, I'm sure our host team will be glad to bring you one. You can slip up your hand. But uh, here's the verse I want to read to you before we jump in. When they saw the star, they being the wise men, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The word of the Lord, and you would say with me, thanks be to God. Father, we thank you now for your word and the power of your word, and we pray that you would operate in and through it, in power, in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you didn't know this, I didn't know it until I found out, that the first song to ever play on the radio was a Christmas carol. Did you know that? Uh, in fact, uh, it was a song that we're going to explore tonight, the incomparable O Holy Night. And it was brought to the airwaves on Christmas Eve in 1906 by a 33-year-old university professor uh, and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison, a man named Reginald Fessenden. And using a new type of generator, he created a microphone. And on that evening, for the first time in history, a voice was broadcast over the airwaves. It was a reading by Fessenden of Luke's gospel. And to the few who caught the broadcast, it must have seemed like a complete miracle. Because up until that point, all that they would have ever received over the airwaves would have been coded impulses. But here we had men and women on ships and in offices who were now rushing to their radio devices to catch this Christmas Eve miracle of some man's voice that they had never heard before coming across these airwaves. Now, the question you want to ask yourself is where does all holy night come into play? Well, after finishing his recitation of Jesus' birth from Luke's gospel, Fessenden pulled out his violin. And I feel like that was a part of history back then. Like every, per no matter what field you were in, no matter what kind of, you could have been a scientist, you could have been a grocery store clerk, you played an instrument of some kind. And I just want to commend that to you. If your children don't play instruments, put something in their hands. It'll make their brains work better. I promise you. He takes out his violin at the end of this recitation and he begins to play Oh Holy Night across the airwaves. And it was the first song ever sent through the airwaves. When the carol ended, so did the broadcast. But he, well, he would forever change how music was heard through a medium that eventually would take it worldwide. Now, of course, this beautiful song did not originate with Fessenden and his violin. In fact, it didn't even originate in the U.S. It originated in France in 1847. And even that is a fascinating story. A man by the name of Placide Capello de Rockmeyer, okay, was the commissioner of wines again. How do you get these jobs? This is not the guy working at Whole Foods pushing two buck chuck, all right? He's a commissioner of wines, which means that he decides the quality of the wine that will be served at any kind of public or civic gathering. And he was probably shocked when his local parish priest asked him to pen a poem for the Christmas Eve Mass because Rockmar was known more for his wine and his artistry than he was for his church attendance. But he offered his gift anyway. And he took it as a great pride that the priests would 
ask him to share this gift. Well, in a dusty coach traveling down a bumpy road to Paris, Capeo considered the priest's request. And using Luke's gospel record as his guide, he imagined himself witnessing Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And by the time he arrived in Paris, he had a poem that he entitled Cantique de Noel. It was completed. Deeply moved by his own work, he decided in his mind that this was no mere poem, but in fact that this was a song. And so he contacted his good friend, Adolf, who was a master composer of Jewish ancestry for help in composing the music. Adolf's talent and fame were world-renowned. He had requests to write works for orchestras and plays and, and different types of musical events all over the world, ballets all over the world, but moved more by the beauty of the poem than his friendship, he began to compose music for Capel's powerful words. As Adolf studied Cantique de Noel, he could not help but note the overly spiritual lyrics extolling the birth of the Savior. And as a man of Jewish ancestry, for him, they represented a holiday that he did not celebrate about a man that he did not believe was God. And yet he was moved. He was moved. Why? Because when we embrace Jesus' narrative, we are moved by its beauty and its power. You can't help but be. I've seen it happen a hundred times. Quickly and diligently, he went to work, and he soon married an original score to Capella's beautiful words. And three weeks later, poet, priest, and composer, sounds like the beginning of a great book or a great joke, they were all pleased. And the song was performed at midnight mass on Christmas Eve. Initially, the song was embraced with whole heart by the church in France, but when Capello walked away from the church to join the French socialist movement, and the leaders of the church discovered that Adolf was Jewish, the song was suddenly denounced. Yet even as the French church tried to bury the song, the French people continued to sing it, and a decade later, it would land on the desk of a reclusive and debilitatingly anxious former pastor in the U.S. who would introduce it to a new audience on the other side of the sea. Enter John Sullivan Dwight, who had no idea that what would follow when he reviewed the French carol, Cantique de Noel, would so deeply impact him. Nor did he gather the weight of it and the haunting lyrics that would capture his soul. So much so that he felt compelled to translate it into English. Dwight was an ardent abolitionist. And he was moved by both the story of the birth of Jesus and the lines in the third verse. Or the second verse, or third verse rather, that are often left off. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall break free, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. You can imagine singing those words back then that they would probably not be well received by many. But he was determined to get it into the hearts and the minds of U.S. citizens. In fact, he believed that slavery was an ill that had to end and that Christ came to make all men and women free. And he believed that the U.S. needed to be confronted with this ill and this fact. And so he labored to translate this song into English and then to get it into every possible songbook he could during this era, as well as into magazines and newspapers. And the song quickly found favor in the North during the Civil War. This song... As the original writer intended and as Dwight determined, invites us to believe one simple thing. And if you miss everything else I say this evening, this is the thing that I need you to hear. 
It invites us to believe that Jesus entering the world changes everything. Jesus entering the world changes everything. It is the pivotal event. It is the fulcrum of history. It is the promise of God. It is the reordering of everything that ever happened. And the thing that I want you to consider in that reality is that if Jesus' birth changes everything, then what does it change for you tonight? What does it change for you in your life? So journey with me. We're going to make five observations and we'll be out of your way through the verses in the chorus of this song. The first verse reads this way, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. In this first verse, we see two beautiful truths. The first being this that our worth was secured when Jesus entered the world. Our worth was secured when Jesus entered the world. Now you think it to yourself, well, why is that so incredibly impactful? Because if you are honest, if you can be honest just for a moment, if I can be honest just for a moment, there are a myriad of things to which we daily look in order to make us feel that we are worthy or have worth. Can we talk about it? And the promise of Jesus is that you don't have to look to anyone or anything else to know that you have inherent value or worth because Jesus secured your worth at his birth. This is a significant idea, and I hope that you are experiencing it that way because we seek our worth to be validated by people, by family, by accomplishments, by relationships, by intelligence, by power, by status, by influence, by clicks and likes and taps and tweets. We seek our worth through any means possible. And the reality is you don't have to. You don't have to. My sisters, you don't need a man to make you feel worthy. My brothers, you don't need a woman to make you feel worthy. Here's a dangerous thing about marriage. You get married believing that all of a sudden all of those insecurities are going to fade into the ether. What a cute idea. They don't. They get worse. Because now you've made vows to a person that you put the weight of Jesus on their shoulders. And they cannot bear it. And so if your soul does not sense its inherent worth before you say, I do. Before you get your big promotion. Before you have the child that is going to fulfill all the dreams that you never got to live. then it'll never know its worth. But the promise of Jesus entering into the world is that even all of those things are good, and let me say it, marriage is good by God. Somebody better talk about it. You, you want to be warm tonight, you better shout. <laughs> laughing, don't even know what you're laughing at. That's the best part of family holidays, little kids laughing at things that's going right over their heads. Children are wonderful. In fact, the Bible says they're a gift from God. And I love every one of my children with my whole heart. Get that promotion. Stack that bread. 
Just be generous with it. But let me tell you something. As good and wonderful and valuable as all those things are, they will never imbue you with worth. They can't do what they weren't made to do. You can have all the doctors, MD, ED, D men, EDS, you can put them all back there. You can accomplish all your family's dreams. They cannot imbue you with worth. But the promise of Jesus is that you've already been imbued with an inherent worth from the day you took your first breath. In fact, Psalm 8, Israel's great king David and Jesus' descendant captures the depth of our, depth of our work perfectly. Here's what he writes. When I observe the heavens and the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. Watch this. Yet you have made them little less than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them ruler over the works of your hands. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You put everything under their feet. Did you hear that? You have been created only beneath God and at the same time given a crown of glory and honor. Now, of course, David knew that this crown of glory and honor was not something that he earned by his awesomeness. But it was delegated to him by the one to whom it belonged. In fact, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine a king of a great nation who finds a person that would be considered anything but royalty. In fact, maybe, maybe they're from the slums. And the king brings that person into the palace and clothes that person with his own kingly splendor and then stands them up on a stage in front of a nation and says, now their worth in this nation, their power, their authority, their reach, their influence is greater than anybody else's but mine. They are now royalty. That is the image that David wants to invoke for us. You see, whether you accept it or not, you have been given a cosmic stewardship, which means that everything in the known universe that you can see, touch, and feel, it is below you as you are below God. That is the worth and the value of human beings. That's why you can't be praying to the universe. First, it's inanimate. Okay, it does not breathe. It does not give you things. It does not change your fate. But secondarily, because the universe pales in comparison to how beautiful God thinks you are, its value is nowhere close to yours. This is the divine calling that has been given to all humanity. The function of cosmic stewardship is a right reserved only for humanity. Now, not only was our souls worth secure when Jesus entered the world, but, but there's a promise that our souls do not have to be weary in this world, but can instead rejoice. In fact, we have a hope that restores the weary soul. Now, you likely see a theme across these songs if you've been here. 
there, 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 there's been a theme that something about Jesus' advent in the world relieves a particular weariness. In every carol we've covered, some promise of relief from weariness, from tiredness, from sorrow, it's been present. Why do you think that's consistent? Could it be because that's such a function of the human condition? And, and the reality is that if we could get ourselves out of it, we would have gotten ourselves out of it by now. But in fact, we need a mediator who is actually going to step in and provide us the means of being relieved from that weariness. Now, what is interesting about this particular line, listen to it, is that it's hope's thrill that revives the soul into rejoicing. Why does hope revive us from weariness? Well, Paul writes in Romans 5, 5, because hope does not put us to shame. Instead, hope reminds us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. And if the love of God has been poured into our hearts and the spirit of God has been filled into our souls and the power of God has been united with ourselves in union with Jesus, how do I know that? Because the Bible says that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. If all of those things are true of me, what in this world can wear me down? The reason we are not revived is because we are not tapped into the source of our power. Stop trying to recharge from Duracells when you've got a supernova attached to your soul. Did that make it plain enough for you? Bourbon, good. Netflix, good. Food, good. None of them power sources. Vegging out is not the same as restoration. And that is, that's what we got to get. That's what we got to get. Kicking your feet up and watching TV for six hours is not restoring you. It's not restoring you. And so then when you, you wonder why at the end of a weekend you're still tired. Well, your body may be a bit refreshed, but your soul is still in the ground. Because you're not tying into the true source of your power. But when we appropriate the spirit, when we remind ourselves that the love of God has been poured into our hearts, when we walk in the calling that God has placed on us, when we pursue intimacy with Jesus, when we actually tap into that he that is in us that's greater than he that is in the world, then, well, then we find a restoration from soul weariness. Now, Capello's beautiful lyrics in verse 2 introduce an idea that many of us struggle to truly believe. And it's one I've struggled to believe for many, many years. And it's this, that Jesus was born to be our Savior and our friend. Can I read them to you? Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming. With glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here came the wise men from the Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. Before anybody ever wore Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, Capeo, a rebel artist barely attached to the church, understood that Jesus was meant to be more than a savior. He was meant to be a friend. 
In fact, Jesus' own words to his friends from John 15 read this way. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friend. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I call you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. Here's my favorite part. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Jesus is willing to lay down his life for his friend. And he did so when he laid down his life on the cross. He does not call followers of the way his servants because we are family. We are intimately acquainted. In fact, so close is Jesus' friendship with those who are his that one sentence later in this same passage, he says, my friends can ask my father for anything and I will granted to them because they're my friends. Now, does that mean he's going to give you things that maybe you don't need? No, because you're his friend. And good friends keep you from self-destructive patterns. As you get older, you will realize this. There are certain people you got to cut out your life because they're fun, but they cause problems. Good friends point you in the direction of your best self, not in the direction maybe of your most fun self. That's a free lesson for you from someone who's lived many lives. But the best part about friendship with Jesus is that he chose us to be his friend. We didn't choose him. He chose us when we didn't want to be his friend. He chose us when we rejected his love and friendship. He chose us when we didn't even believe that, that we could befriend him. Listen, he chose us to be his friends while we were still treating him like an enemy. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Well, the last verse is the one that grabbed John Sullivan Dwight's heart, as we earlier noted. And it is likely the church's unwillingness to enter into the spirit of these words that drove Capeo to the socialist movement, rather than being able to live into the social implications of the gospel itself. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains he will break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. As with the hope of being unwearied, we find again a familiar strand. It seems that the authors of that day were especially keen to display the gospel social dynamics through poem and song. Just like in it came upon a midnight clear, we find a clear call to love and liberate those who live on the margins and who suffer oppression of people and systems and structures. And that is the last point of, of these verses is Jesus' love liberates the oppressed. And it's a point that I hope we don't miss. That in fact, if you open up your Bible, you're going to find over and over and over and over again a, a similar theme that God ever and always stands on the side of the oppressed. Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19, God stands on the side of the oppressed. Isaiah 117, God stands on the side of the oppressed. Micah 6, 8, God stands on the side of the oppressed. Amos 5, 23 through 24, God stands on the side 
side of the oppressed. James 1, 26 and 27, God stands on the side of the oppressed. James 2, 5, God stands on the side of the oppressed. You don't believe me, go read it for yourself. Over and over again, we see God step in for those who cannot stand for themselves. He fights for those who cannot fight for themselves. And he calls his people to do the same, to fight against people and institutions that would rob anyone of their dignity, that would rob anyone of their imago Dei, their image bearing, that would dehumanize them in any way that would rob them of their ability to reflect all the fullness that God intended for them to reflect and to enjoy all the benefits of what being just lower than God in their cosmic stewardship. And it is that freedom and that imperative to worship that ties this beautiful work together, to worship freely as God's people that we find in the words of the chorus, fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices, oh, night divine, O night when Christ was born. You see, when Jesus entered the world, this was no routine event. It was not a normal night. It was a divine night. It was a divine night accompanied by angels singing and stars shining more brightly and dignitaries coming from a foreign land to view a baby. And you have to ask yourself, even if I don't believe in the Bible, I know that this is history. I know that it is recorded. I know that it is written down by men and women who did not even follow the way of Jesus. Why in the world was this so significant? It's because when Jesus entered the world, everything changed. And in the opening verse, we find the appropriate response to that change. As the wise men fall to their knees, and what do they do? They worship. Jesus' presence requires worship. Jesus' presence requires worship. And if Jesus' presence requires worship, and elicits worship from shepherds and wise men and Simeon. If Jesus' presence elicits worship from the angels, then how much more should it elicit it from us? When we fail to worship him, not only are we not giving him his due, but we're actually robbing ourselves of reorienting our worth. Now, if you're following the way of Jesus, you're asking yourself, well, why should this matter to me on this holy night? I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first, I want to extend an invitation to anyone here who, who would say that maybe they're not a follower of the way of Jesus. Maybe this is their first church experience. Maybe, maybe you don't even know why you're here. <laughs> maybe you don't have any beef with the song. Maybe, maybe you're not sure about the story itself, about Jesus. And I cannot convince you of that in 25 minutes. I cannot. And I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you carried here today. I don't know what you're going home to. Here's what I do know. Here's what I know. I know that this entire world is weary. And it's evident. I know that. I know that we have an entire monetized culture built on worth-seeking. 
And I know that if hope was something we could generate from within, we would have done it by now. Those are things that I know. And I also know that Jesus wants you to experience every single promise he's made. And so here's what I want to do just for a moment. I just want to pray. And you don't have to stand up, raise your hand. You don't have to come to the middle, nothing like that. I'm going to invite you to pray right where you are. I'm going to invite everybody to pray. But if tonight is a night that you want to put your trust in Jesus, I want to extend an invitation to you with a simple prayer. And if you all would indulge me, every head bowed, every eye closed, let someone have their moment. Here's the prayer. And you can pray it quietly to yourself. Jesus, help me to believe in you. Forgive me for rejecting your friendship and living in a way that rejected your friendship. Give me faith to believe. Give me the grace of forgiveness. Give me your standing with the Father. Make my life new. In your name I pray. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, it's not a magic formula. It's what's happening inside. And if you prayed it in earnest, everything changes for you right now, forever, forever. And I only have one ask, that you don't go it alone. And so if you would be willing to text, I became a Christian, to 94000, one of our pastors will get back with you to tell you what your next step is. Now, for those of us who are wondering, why does this matter for me? Well, since the first rendition at a small Christmas mass in 1847, think about that, 1847, Cantique de Noel, I prefer the French version, or O Holy Night, has been sung millions of times in churches and on stages in every corner of the world. And since the moment that a handful of people first heard it played on the radio, this carol, listen, has become the most recorded and played spiritual song in the entertainment industry. Total sales, total sales for a poem pinned in a coach on a bumpy road on the way to Paris have totaled in the tens of millions of dollars. And this incredible work, requested by a priest, written by a poet unceremoniously run off from the church and given music by a Jewish composer, brought to the U.S. by a cripplingly anxious former pastor, has served as a tool not only to highlight the ills of oppression and slavery, but also to tell the story of the birth of the Savior. And it has grown into one of the most inspiring pieces of music that has ever existed. But more still, it has called us to revere the night that Jesus entered into the world and live in light of it every day. And so here's what I'm going to encourage you to do as a next step. I would encourage you to take this little booklet here, grab one on the way out, if you don't have one, and memorize the verse that most deeply impacted you, that challenges your heart and your faith the most. Memorize it and ask God to use it to change your heart. Here's part two. Then do the thing that it inspires. Okay? 
if it's realizing that the soul felt its worth when Jesus entered into the world, then cut off things that rob you of your worth. Cut off people that rob you of your worth. If it is engaging in the social call of the gospel, then step into that arena. If it is reminding yourself every single day, every day, that Jesus is worthy of worship and that that is going to change how you pray and how you show up to this place with consistency and regularity and passion and fervor, let that be it. But whatever it is, let the change in your heart inspire a change in the way you live. Because here's what I believe. I believe that all of the people who say that they are followers of the way of Jesus, if we engage in this way, then not only will the vision of this church eventually be fulfilled, but all of the things that we have in our hearts that we want to see God do, they're going to be so well within reach. That's our opportunity today. Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would inspire our hearts in this regard. To not memorize this song for the sake of memorizing it, but to do so, so that the change that accompanies this moment in our hearts will lead to how we live our lives. And that will lead to a world being fundamentally different in Christ's name.